All right. I'm going to have this as the last time that I discuss my views on religion by myself. If I ever talk about it again, it would be with a guest. And this will also be the last time I talk about my ethical sex and my sex life, as well as my marital status and my parental status, those kind of things. By myself, if I ever talk about it again, it'll be with another person. So I want to be able to keep all these things in mind. So when it's talked about, um, fully, then you'll know I'm not beating a dead horse or anything. I, I just got to get this out of my system for my own healing. And so after this, I'll be talking about brand new things in the episodes, okay? So don't worry about me. I'm doing well. I'm doing fine. Have a good time. Break. This is Frank Schaffer. FrankSchaferBlog.com. This is posted on February 21st of this year at 9.53 p.m. It's not just personal, the collective trauma of religion. A guest blog by Marlene Winnell, PhD, Dr. Winnell. On January 20th, America's religiosity is on full display. In fact, the religious parts of the U.S. inauguration were excessive even by inauguration standards, which always includes an invocation and benediction. In addition to the lengthy prayers, President Biden made multiple references to God in the Bible. Oaths were made on family Bibles, providing the clear message that these political families are people of faith. Everyone said the Pledge of Allegiance was, quote unquote, under God in the wording. Then Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace, in quotations, and unbelievably led the crowd in singing the last verse together. This is more than a problem of separation of church and state. It perpetuates dangerous religious ideas that relate to deep issues of religion in our culture. Usually Americans assume people's personal religious beliefs are just that, personal. It's not polite to disagree or even inquire. We give wildly irrational ideas they pass because they are comforting. We're tolerant. Quote unquote, whatever helps you sleep at night. But religious beliefs are not personal because collectively, even well-intentioned religious people can do damage to society with their beliefs. They may vote for legislation that is misogynist or homophobic, for example. They may deny science and risk the planet or deny a pandemic and kill thousands. Recently, the, the Alliance of Christian Nationalism and Trumpism contributed to a deadly attack on the US Capitol. Schaefer 2021 references parentheses. In numbers, religious people can do enormous harm. So yes, it is our business what people believe. But I want to talk here about a different kind of harm from religion, one that is deeper and more complex. That has to do with how religions operate within the psyches of individuals and groups of people. The people of the United States have suffered dogmatic conservative Christianity as a collective trauma. What is collective trauma? The term refers to the impact of a specific event or broad social dynamic, in parentheses, war, natural disaster, epidemic, apartheid, etc., on a whole group of people causing related trauma to many at the same time. For example, writers are talking about collective trauma on society from COVID-19 
in parentheses silver 2020 for reference and needing to heal from the collective trauma of the Trump era in parentheses guessing 2020 for reference. Collective trauma can be a one-time event like a tsunami or take many years like slavery. It could be like complex post-traumatic stress involving many, many repeated injuries. It could be like chronic abuse. This is the cause of this is the case of religion as trauma, both individually and collectively. The injuries are multiple and they come from both toxic teachings and toxic practices. Toxic teachings. Fundamentalist Christianity actively teaches that people are born bad and will always lean towards sin that can never be trusted. These tenets were reinforced during the inauguration ceremony as Garth Brooks sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Individuals are taught from early childhood that they are empty of goodness, strength, or wisdom and must always rely on God for anything of value. Feelings and intuitions and conversations that cast doubt on religious teachings or leaders cannot be trusted, and thinking for yourself is dangerous. People with different understandings of the world are seen as a threat to be destroyed or converted. This leads to polarization in society, not unity. Children are also taught to be afraid of burning in hell, of living in a sinful world, of spiritual warfare, of other people, of life itself. Believers are taught to live for the next world, not to take responsibility to make this world a better place to protect the environment. The abandonment of our planet was glorified by the inauguration crowd as they sang together. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Christian fundamentalists teach magical thinking and trust that a superior being will resolve everything at the end of time. Most seriously, they promote black and white thinking with their group having the truth and all others being damned. The psychological results of these beliefs can be devastating. Individuals may lack a sense of intrinsic self-worth or personal identity, identifying instead with their religious group. They may suffer anxiety because they can never be good enough and they can never have certainty about their ultimate salvation. Some former, some former believers face ongoing struggles because discarding specific beliefs like these does not erase the associated toxic assumptions and feelings about self and life. In addition, leaving this kind of faith brings with it the trauma of having one's entire worldview upended. Vital social support systems of church and family are disrupted and the ex-believer feels lost in a big foreign world of secularism. Promises of cosmic meaning and perfectionism are shattered. A person who walks away must completely rebuild their life. Toxic practices. Fundamentalist religions have harmful practices that also cause damage. Parenting is often authoritarian and punitive, advocating corporal punishment, which can lead to abuse. Sexual repression results in dysfunctions and sexual abuse. Women and girls must submit to patriarchy. The LGBTQ plus community is condemned as are many cultural and racial differences. Children experience isolation in the religious group as they are kept in closed environments in church, family, and school. They may suffer serious developmental delays and as information and experience are kept from them and they are unable to mature in the wider, in the wider community. 
Upon leaving a religion with this in-group slash out-group perspective, survivors often strive to catch up socially, cognitively, and emotionally. Many are not prepared to take part in the world community. These individual effects have all been described in my work on religious trauma syndrome, Wenel 2011, which is a pattern of symptoms common to the population of ex-believers who have been traumatized by living in the slash or leaving a conservative dogmatic religion. I've compared it to complex post-traumatic stress and have dedicated much of my career to developing strategies for recovery when L2007. But I always concentrated on understanding, on understanding and helping individuals. However, I am now seeing clear symptoms of collective religious trauma. Understanding traumatized believers. Think about the individual who is suffering the toxic effects of religion, how many of those individuals they and how many of those individuals there are. Add those who are less devout but who exhibit the cascading social and cultural effects of religion in the way of we slash day mentality, patriarchy, homophobia, biphobia, lesbophobia, transphobia, or misogyny. Racism, for example, has clear roots in religion, camera 2019. So do environmental exploitation and science denial. Think about the Christian nationalists who claim God-given rights on earth or climate change denialists and where they got their ideas. Then try on a new thought. Think about all these people, this huge group of religionists as victims of trauma. These are ordinary humans born innocent babes. The guilt and shame, the fear and the judgment they experienced came from their religion. It happened over time and over many generations. There's historical trauma, examples, Salem witch trials, slaveholder religion, and intergenerational trauma children and grandchildren of Jonathan Edwards or the genealogy of the Mormons. There is huge collective trauma, pervasive pain and dysfunction, and yet all go unmentioned. Why? Because in our culture, religion is still considered a good thing. People get comfort from certain beliefs and they find community. No one wants to believe religion is behind so much psychological dysfunction, divisiveness in society, or vile attitudes and behaviors that are tearing us apart. Religion of this kind stands opposed to human unity, no matter how good it sounds from President Biden right now. Christian end times theology actually teaches that uniting people is a tenet of the Antichrist and will only lead to establishing his nefarious worldwide kingdom. Believers in this theology, which includes 70 million evangelicals in the US, learn to think in dichotomies, right and wrong, reward and punishment, separating sheep from goats. Correct knowledge in this worldview is revealed by God, not discovered by humans. In this view, science will never have authority because it is man-made. God is said to be in control. According to fundamentalist religionists, humans are not responsible for the fate of the earth and it is considered hubris to think we can affect the environment. Nothing stands in the way of God's will, not a pandemic and not climate change. Toxic teachings lead believers to be helpless but that's considered okay because the earth is going to burn soon and justice will be served to the saved and damned. Meanwhile, these religionists look for signs of the end, sometimes even to the point of encouraging war in the Middle East while looking the other way of global crises we could humanely solve if united in our goals. Stated historically, some of the most harmful parts of Christianity are remains of an archaic system, still medieval in many ways, Doctors may have cures for epilepsy, but instead of considering it demon possession, 
instead of considering it demon possessed, the church was still doing exorcisms and exploiting people looking for faith healing. The Inquisition may be over, but rampant prejudice and severe punishment is still meted out by religion. It's time we named the culprit in the massive pain and suffering, authoritarian religion. We are dealing with crushing collective religious trauma. Millions of people are living along mains and having no idea what the problem is. Most don't know they are impaired. They shout with ignorance and hate and don't know why. They've lost their moral core because their religion has usurped their natural instincts to make their own judgments about what is right. They are left vulnerable to church leaders with questionable motives who claim God wants them to support a person like Trump. Institutionalized religionism. This is the crime of religionism, and it's just as insidious as racism, but it's almost invisible because religion is embedded in our culture. We claim freedom of religion as a basic right and forget about freedom from religion. But what if destructive religionist expression got the same disapproval as racist remarks? It's clear that we have institutionalized religionism. In the U.S., it's not possible in practical terms to run for public office without professing some kind of faith. Churches and religious organizations have enormous money and power, while atheists are more suspect and hated in the U.S. than in other countries, rural 2012. Amy Coney Barrett can be appointed to the Supreme Court while holding highly destructive religionist beliefs because it's considered private, blue at 2020. The same would not be true if she expressed racist attitudes. How could her religious beliefs not affect her judgments? Sarah Palin was not worried about global warming because Jesus was coming back and no one cut short her run for high office. Courts and ceremonies use the Bible to swear in as if it's the ultimate authority. The list could go on and it's important to see that institutionalized religionism affects everyone in society, not just the religion affiliated. It is unquestioned everywhere, safe from interrogation. Even billboards blare out threats about going to hell and no one calls it what it is, abuse. A history of religious influence shows in the structures of our society. Just like fundamentalist Christianity, our criminal justice system judges and punishes people as individuals instead of holding systems accountable. We use a dichotomous guilty slash not guilty. Incarceration is about control and revenge, not rehabilitation. We live a myth that capitalist America is a meritocracy, thereby looking down on the poor. Just like Christians get saved as individuals getting their tickets to heaven, we admire individuals who climb the status and money ladder. Wait, you wonder, what would Jesus say? Exactly. The authoritarian Christianity of today has moved a long way from the original teachings of Jesus. The upper levels of church hierarchy are all about power and money. The Mormon church makes over $7 billion a year, Zuckerberg 2012 for reference. With this lens, it's possible to understand the Faustian bargain between Trump and the evangelical power base, North 2019 for reference. The macho God of the fundamentalist slash evangelical is much more like the Old Testament Jehovah than Jesus. As I said in my article comparing Trump to Jehovah, this can help explain the support of Trump, when now 2016 for reference. The values and behavior are similar. For example, might is right in quotations, and anything is permissible to achieve the ruler's ends. In truth, fundamentalist authoritarian Christianity is a violent religion. In the Old Testament, God sanctions multiple scenarios of death and destruction, and in the New Testament, the blood sacrifice of God's child is considered divine justice, the grace that saves us. 
history of the church is a bloody one. The Middle Ages brought hellish violence along with attempts at theocracy, and it's not over. Church groups in our time have no compunction about violently opposing moralities that diverge from dogma, such as the actions taken on matters of abortion or LGBTQI plus issues. This is not about wanting democracy by any means. This kind of religion has rigid ideas of right and wrong, and ultimately only a theocracy will satisfy. We have seen the violence of fundamentalist religion firsthand recently. In the crowd of insurrections who seized the U.S. Capitol, Christian imagery was everywhere. Alongside Confederate flags and white supremacist symbols, protesters shouldered crosses, waved quote-unquote Jesus saves signs, and hung oversized quote-unquote Jesus 2020 or quote-unquote Trump Jesus banners and carried Christian flags. On the National Mall, people chanted, Christ is King, on the 2021 for reference. These are the images of dominance, not democracy. As Bill Maher in, of this, in this year pointed out in his montage of Christian behavior at the Capitol protest, it was obvious that a large number of the protesters were, were evangelicals. He called the episode, quote-unquote, America's mass delusion. We may wonder about how religious beliefs and political views are related, but some of the linkages are clear. The worldview of the conservative can be seen as rooted in the Bible. Human nature is seen as fallen and not to be trusted. Goodness is related to power and an individual striving, an individual striving the primary virtue. Again, goodness is related to power and individual striving the primary virtue. Lakoff, 2014, says, made clear the contrast between a progressive worldview and a conservative one by comparing their values as nurturant parent and strict father. He stopped short of connecting the conservative view with biblical directives but helped explain how evangelical beliefs would support Trump. Lakoff, 2016, it's clear that a muscular Jesus is the popular icon in modern evangelicalism, the Darwin 2011, the one who is coming back with an army to win the Battle of Armageddon. Meanwhile, it makes sense that millions of Americans would feel disempowered by the religious doctrines of original sin and self-degradation. They are attracted to the strong man, despite being unaware of why they feel no self-efficacy. Authoritarian religion has undermined the sense of personal agency and ability for critical thinking necessary for a democracy. This happens to those listening to harmful sermons in church and many more who are affected by institutionalized ideas. The religionism in our society is not only dangerous, but can be life-threatening. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Donald Trump called houses of worship essential. Woodward 2020 for reference. Despite clear evidence from the CDC that churches can be hot spots for spreading the disease. CDC 2020 for reference. He wanted people back in church to celebrate Easter. Many Christians have taken his cue, defying compassion and action by meeting together even as case numbers soar. This attitude about church attendance continues regardless of spiking COVID cases. In other words, our collective religious trauma is killing us. Time for healing. Our collective well-being depends on us addressing and healing collective religious trauma. We need to think about how to recover. Perhaps we need more public truth-telling. After apartheid in South Africa, the truth-telling ritual is done by the truth and reconciliation process for healing as people felt less alone with the truth of their lived experience. In my support groups for people in religious recovery, there's healing in the telling of stories as people resonate with shared experiences. They stop their denial and self-blame. They find compassion and hope. 
They join with newfound courage as they, cl as they clarify self-chosen values. As people heal, they discover intrinsic dignity, learn mutual respect, let go of fear, and celebrate differences. They learn about new ways of finding meaning. They get excited about finding love and connection with all humans, not just the chosen few. They rebuild their lives and write personal manifestos. On broad levels, we need to question the values and assumptions underlying all of our institutions because they are affected by religious ideas. Students in school are not just empty vessels to be filled up with information, the quote unquote, the banking model of education, Freire, 1970 for reference, but young people to be encouraged in creativity and critical thinking. They do need information, but how about a class in comparative religion in grade school so kids don't get the idea that their religion is the only one? Or what if we learn from the, from the Norwegian program that gives convicts job training and housing help as they return to society complete with the power to vote? BBC News 2019 for reference. What if we had an adequate safety net for all so that our population does not have to live in fear of hard times? This fear, this fear clearly fuels our competitive system, but is that what we want? Must our primary messages be the same as rigid religion? You are not okay and you must be afraid? This is institutionalized religion. When underlying religious messages prevail and have gained the power of becoming subconscious. Again, this is institutionalized religion. When underlying religious messages prevail and have gained the power of becoming subconscious. Institutionalized religionism is even broader than institutionalized racism, but it has not been understood or named, yet it is taking an enormous toll. We are so far from being a quote-unquote Christian nation if compassion for people is any part of that ideal. Perhaps naming institutionalized religionism will be transformative in the same way that naming institutionalized racism has been galvanizing. We need to see and recognize the collective trauma we carry. Celebrating the nation's religiosity in public ceremonies only reinforces our trauma. On a collective level, perhaps healing can come from truth-telling about religion, ending the silence. Perhaps healing involves putting effort into repairing damage caused by religiosity. And how about a collective manifesto to reclaim the life stolen by authoritarian religion? Is the question. So I'm going to put this in my own words because I don't want people feeling like you're speaking for me. Well, if you feel like I am speaking for you and what I'm about to say, then that means you think a lot. But if you don't feel like I'm speaking for you, I'm gonna just use assertive language referring to myself so I can be at peace. I reclaim my intrinsic dignity and I reject the notion of a fallen nature. I reclaim my right to think for myself and I reject authoritarianism. I reclaim ownership of my feelings and my intuition. I reclaim my respect for my body and my sexuality. I reclaim my compassion for other beings and I reject judgment of the other. I reclaim my love for the earth and the desire to care for her. I reclaim my right to live free from fear of punishment in the afterlife. I reclaim the right to trust my own senses and my own experience. I reclaim my freedom 
and responsibility for my own life. I reclaim my right to live free and actually along with other animals. Imagine a collective voice of healing if, as we reject the ancient burden of religionism. Imagine relief from so much silent pain and suffering. This is just as important as individual healing if we are to bring our society together. Telling the truth and declaring our freedoms could be a start. Imagine no religion, Lenin, Anno, etc. more for reference, and imagine a culture of compassion. This article addresses the destructive effects of authoritarian religion, not the more progressive liberal form. There are churches and groups that are inclusive and life-affirming, which are active in social causes. This type of Christianity focuses on the life and teachings of Christ instead of Christ's death. They are concerned with this present life instead of being what is essentially a death cult focused on the hereafter. Marlon Winnell, PhD, is a psychologist who specializes in religious recovery and has experienced in her own life a transition from being a devout religionist to being, quote unquote, a reclaimer, a person who has left religion and reclaimed her life. Well, I can honestly say that I 100% agree with Dr. Winnell. Um, I left dogmatic conservative Christianity recently. And I stay gone, by the way. I left the toxic teachings, the toxic theology, and the toxic practices of that dogmatic conservative Christianity. Um, and I stay gone, by the way. I stay gone from authoritarian, from authoritarian religion. Um, I left that recently. Um, I, I, I was a, you know, I'm recovering from harmful, from harmful religion. And you have to understand traumatized believers like myself. Um, I'm recovering from institutionalized religionism. Um, I'm recovering from fundamentalists authoritarian Christianity. Um, I'm recovering from religionism. Um, when I say recovering, meaning I'm, I left those things and I stayed gone, but I'm still healing those wounds. I'm still um, nursing myself back to full health. So... I also am really glad that I'm recovering from religious trauma syndrome. Um, I'm recovering from sin consciousness. I'm recovering from the obsession of exorcisms, demon possession, demons, devils, and Satan. Um, I'm recovering from persecution consciousness. I'm recovering from victim consciousness. I'm recovering from paranoia consciousness. Um, I'm recovering from 
martyrdom consciousness. Um, I must say that I'm recovering I'm recovering from tribal religion. I'm recovering from the we hold the keys of heaven, we decide who goes to heaven and goes to hell. Apparently they also have the keys to hell because they decide who goes there too. I'm recovering from that. I'm recovering from the we're the cho we're the only chosen people of God and y'all are the chosen people of the devil so we're the chosen people y'all the rejected people um i'm recovering from all those things um another thing i'm recovering from is and i'll go to the next article I'm recovering from the in-groups, out-groups. Teachings, I'm recovering from the religious doctrines of original sin and self-degradation. Yeah, I'm just... I'm glad that I am a secular, I'm glad that I'm a secular slash non-religious person. And I tend to stay that way until forever. I tend to stay that way forever. Everywhere in this article speaks directly to me, and I appreciate that. Can religion be an addiction? Promises BehaviorHealth.com. We throw the word addiction around too casually sometimes. When a woman claims she's addicted to shoes, or an athlete says running is addictive, are these statements true? The idea of behavioral or process addiction is gaining ground in the addiction community. Yes, it is possible for one's obsession with buying shoes or working out to become harmful to the extent that some experts will use the word addiction. What about religion? Is being devoted to God and going to services regularly something that can turn into a process addiction? It is possible to become so dedicated to worship that it overtakes everything else. Like any other behavioral addiction, this obsession is related to emotions and to the brain and shares signs and symptoms of substance addiction. Like other addictions, it can be treated with dedication to quality therapy. Religion and the process addiction. A process addiction is one that involves an activity or behavior rather than a chemical substance like alcohol or heroin. 
Experts in the field of psychiatry have already officially recognized problem gambling as an addictive disorder. The recognition is based on the scientific evidence provided by researchers that compulsive gambling shares many characteristics with substance addictions. Although no other behaviors have been officially included in the addiction category, there's evidence that just about any activity can become an obsession. From, from there, it is a short road to something very similar to addiction. As with chemical addictions, process addictions can lead to destroyed relationships and finances. Feelings of withdrawal and even changes to chemical pathways in the brain led to rewards and experience of pleasure. Signs of religious addiction. How can you tell when someone has crossed the line from fulfilling and healthy religious worship to harmful obsession? There are some signs that religious beliefs have gone beyond normal and helpful and have become something like an addiction. Uh, avoiding responsibilities. When worship gets in the way of going to work, taking care of family duties and maintaining relationships, any other type of responsibility, it may be a problem. Obsession with rules. Religions typically set out guidelines and rules to live by. Someone with a dangerous relationship to religion begins to follow these rules strictly regardless of the consequences. They do not stop to question them, but simply adheres to the rules with a single-minded obsession. And they also spend hours thinking about interpretation of rules and what is considered what is considered to be a sin. Financial problems. Someone with an unhealthy devotion to church may begin tithing beyond their means. They may spend money that they cannot afford on religious charities or on spiritual retreats. Detachment from the real world. Being spiritual involves some sense of detachment from material goods, but for a religious addict, this may go to the extreme. Someone obsessing over religious beliefs may give up all their things and devote themselves entirely to spiritual well-being. Mood swings. If someone is addicted to religion, they may feel wildly happy and upbeat while in prayer and attending a service. On the other hand, if they cannot get to a service, their mood may swing down and they may mope and feel badly about themselves. What causes a religion, a religion addiction? What causes an individual to develop any kind of obsession or addiction is variable, but there are some common threads. There are genetic factors, but addictive behaviors can also be triggered by trauma, such as abuse experience of a child, stress, low self-esteem, and other, and other feelings can contribute as well. In some cases, an addiction to a religion may be transferred from another addiction. Sometimes when, when people who are addicted to drugs and people who are addicted to alcohol are in recovery, they switch their compulsive behaviors from substance abuse to something more healthful like religion. They can, this can turn into an addiction in itself, however. Some people turn to religion for the feeling of togetherness that they experience in the community. Becoming a part of that group may be a healthy answer to loneliness and search for meaning, but can also turn into an obsession. In the case of a cult, the consequences could be severe. Regardless of the motivation for seeking out comfort in religion, if worship becomes an addiction, there are ways to get help. And with any type of process addiction, a trained therapist can help, the, can help the person who is addicted learn how to control their impulses and obsessions. With regular counseling and support from loved ones, there is such a thing as recovery from religious addictions. Um, I am recovering from witnessing religion addiction from other people. I'm also recovering from post-traumatic church syndrome.
so that is where I am too. This is also what I want to say. Um, ISSM.info slash sexual health. What does sex positive quote unquote mean? The term sex positive can be interpreted in different ways for most. It involves having positive attitudes about sex and feeling comfortable with one's own sexual identity and with the sexual behaviors of others. Sex positive people tend to have the following traits. They're open to learning Okay, here we go. I have to use self-ownership language. Let's hit it. I am open to learning more about sex and sexual activity. I try to understand my body, my partner's bodies, and all of the physical, emotional, psychological, and psychological aspects involved with intimacy. If I have questions about sex, I feel comfortable asking. I understand the importance of safe sex for both myself and my partners. Safe sex can include discussing se sexual se safe sex can include discussing sexual histories, picking the right partners, and then picking me as the right partner. I say right partners, right partner, right partner. I'm talking about positive persons and positive persons, meaning myself and them using condoms and being tested for sexually transmitted infections, STIs, like HIV, and sexually transmitted diseases. It can also include emotional and psychological safety, such as my supporting a partner with a sexual dysfunction or one with a history of sexual abuse, like myself. Um... I can consider sex to be a healthy part of life that should be enjoyed. For sex positive people like me, sex can be discussed without shame or awkwardness. It's not a taboo subject. I acknowledge that sometimes I won't want to have sex and that my partners might not want to have sex with me. I accept others with sexual practices as long as the participants consent and feel safe without moral judgment. This means accepting sex behaviors that might be different from my own. Um, such as having many partners. That's actually me. <laughs> Gauging in threesomes. That's actually me. Or swapping marital partners. If it's an open relationship, I don't see why I can't swap with them, right? This also means I'm accepting others' sexual orientations and lifestyles without judgment. Being sex positive can be complicated. For example, some sexual behaviors may not align with a person's cultural and religious values, or a person might have experienced sexual trauma in the past. Such trauma can be difficult to discuss and make that person feel anxious and frightened in sexual situations. Overall, however, the concept of being sex positive involves understanding your own sexuality and what it means for you and your relationships. Overall, however, the concept of being sex positive involves understanding my own sexuality and what it means for me and my relationships. Um, 
I must say that, yeah, I did experience sexual trauma in the past. And I used to feel anxious and frightened sexual situations. And it was difficult to discuss any sexual trauma that happened to me. And um, honestly, for myself, I felt this sense of being okay with disagreeing with faith-based sexuality. Even though people who want to do that have the right to do that, I still disagree. The culture values I thought about sex were about male chauvinism, and I completely reject that. So, I just love the fact that I'm a sex positive person. Okay. I'm gonna make this really simple. I'm not gonna even do a lot of reading on this one. Uh, Here we go. More reasons on why I choose to live by myself and why I choose to live alone. I know I repeat myself, but I'm just happy. No cleaning issues for me. I can enjoy the silence. I can eat anywhere. No more rules for me. Only my decisions matter. I no need to share anything per pertaining to me. No more borrowing clothes pertaining to me. Total control in my life. Complete freedom for me. I decide my own decor. No need to wait late at night pertaining to me. I have my complete privacy. No need to greet anyone pertaining to me. I can sleep anywhere in my home. I can listen to any type of music and no need to compromise pertaining to me. These are all the reasons why I choose to live alone, live by myself. Yes. Okay. Here are some of the reasons why I will not have a pet. Here we go. Animals cost a lot of money. They they eat and call your stuff. They don't know how to use the toilet. I don't have to bag shit, sip shit, or step in shit. All products of pets. When you go on vacation, you have to find someone to take care of them. They get, ex they get sick and it's mad expensive to fix them. They don't respect your personal space. They climb on you, jump on you, and try to sleep in your bed. They could attack at any moment.
They lick to show love. That's gross. They make noise. It's not like you can have a conversation with the noise they make. I'll pick the last one. We have a lot of guests over to the house. Some people are allergic to animals. I'm just thinking about other people. Oh, this is the last one for sure. I like alone time. On my days off, I don't mind some alone time. Animals don't give you alone time. So those are reasons why I refuse to be a pet owner. I'm not owning pets. I will not own a pet. I'm just, no, 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 no. Okay. I'm just value honesty at this point in my life. That's what makes me a beautiful human. Okay. I'm going to definitely put these in my own words. Okay. Here are my rules for casual sex. My casual sex. To keep my dating life spicy. I choose my partners wisely and my partners choose me wisely. We establish basic ground rules. We have boundaries regarding what we share with each other, what we won't share with each other. Um, for example, we have technological boundaries, phone boundaries, and person boundaries, email boundaries, uh, video chat boundaries, and you know, in person and just technological boundaries overall. Um, we have financial boundaries if we hang out. Um, obviously, sexual boundaries. You know, safe sexual practices. Um, we have family boundaries. How do we do? You know, friend boundaries, colleague boundaries, talk buddy boundaries. Uh, hang up buddy boundaries. We have all these healthy boundaries. Material boundaries, um, physical boundaries, emotional boundaries. Those are the things that we establish. We do play it safe, meaning that um, we're open to um, We don't sex shame each other. We don't slut shame each other. We don't kink shame each other. We don't food shame each other. And um, as for the basic ground rules, um, we decide how ongoing our hookups will be and not be. And will it be a friends of benefits thing or just seeing how it goes and figure out later, we have those rules. Um, and we decide whether this whole thing's gonna remain secret or not. And also what happens if, cause I know I won't catch feelings and what happens if they catch feelings that don't wanna be part of this anymore, but I don't wanna be part of it. No, we, we talk about that. So. 
this kind of thing. And we make sure the rules are set mutually only when we're sober. And the rules go beyond the meaning arrangements and extend towards the protection we will use. So we do things like that. And if we want to end it, uh, we discuss how to do it with respect to one another. And um, I think about um, how even though, even though we have an emotional connection, we don't have the type of emotional connection that leads to a serious relationship. So we know how to compartmentalize ourselves emotionally. So those are my rules for uh, my casual sex. It's just good to um, know how things should be. So I'm going to just say these simple things. I'm going to focus on the benefits of casual dating when it comes to me. I'm a casual dater. I get to have romance and touch in my life without the commitments of a serious long-term relationship. I have someone to hang out with in my downtime. I have someone to do quote-unquote couple and quote-unquote relationship things with without the commitment. Oh, and hold on. I have someone to do quote-unquote couple and quote-unquote relationship things with without the commitment. Yeah, that's me. I get to know someone in a laid-back, pressure-free way. I date multiple people at the same time. I have sex with a regular partner. I get to spend time with someone I like who likes me back. I get to know someone in a casual way. Even though I do not want to pursue a serious relationship with them, I determine if someone isn't a good fit for me in terms of being in a casual relationship. Um, I enjoy spending time with someone I like even though I know we wouldn't make a great couple in the long term because I don't want to be in a committed relationship. I enjoy the fun parts of dating um, without a lot of the more mundane difficult parts of maintaining a long-term partnership. Um, things aren't purely sexually, things aren't purely sexual usually me and the other person generally like spending time with each other even when we're not having sex. I have more independence and flexibility since I don't need to totally sync my life up with the other person's life. I don't need to find the quote unquote perfect partner. I enjoy spending time with anyone who I find fun to be around. Even if they're not the quote unquote perfect fit for me as a romantic partner because I don't want a romantic relationship. I might find out I re we really like each other and decide to keep our casual relationship flowing. So those that's what casual dating is like for me. 
I know what I want and why I want it. I know what I need and why I need it. I tell my partners exactly what I want and need from the relationship and they do the same for me. I'm honest with myself. My partners are honest with themselves, honest with each other. We check in often. We communicate if things aren't going as planned. We stay true to ourselves. So that's what my casual dating doesn't involve having sex, by the way. So casual dating, casual sex, I use interchangeably referring to my own personal life that I choose to make public. And my hooking up and, and my friends with benefits, I use I I I engage in those things. Um, and it's something that I truly enjoy. Those are things I truly enjoy. Um, my friends with benefits relationships usually involve us hanging out regularly in 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 non-romantic ways, but sex is a main feature of our get-togethers. Whereas my hooking up is a more general term to describe myself and another and or others more engaging any form of physical intimacy, in this case, sexual intimacy. So I just love to tell the truth. We have the same definitions for what we want and need, meaning we agree on how the relationship is going. And that is truly the truth. Okay. So my last one, okay, I'm really doing well, doing well. Uh, here we go. Establishing Ground Rules for Ethical Nominogamy, written by Andre and Cassis M.A., students.ouhsc.edu. Establishing Establishing Ground Rules for Ethical Nominogamy. Open relationships and the other forms of ethno-monogamy aren't for everyone, but neither is monogamy. Some people who might prefer an open relationship or the other types of ethical non-monogamy sometimes avoid asking for it as their emotional commitment develops with their partner. However, if monogamy isn't something you think you'll be capable of for five or six decades, author Dan Savage suggests that maybe you should be anxious to get rejected. The point being, staying quiet about your needs can lead to problems down the line and results in infidelity. For individuals like Savage, who was in a non-monogamous marriage, his husband initially rejected the idea, but it was his husband who later suggested they try it. Why people choose ethical non-monogamy? I'm about to speak for myself um, in a few seconds. An article from BetterHelp, like at the end, at, an article from BetterHelp, link at the end of this article, has a really great list already put together to elaborate on some of the reasons why people choose ethical Here's the part we've been waiting for. 
here's why I choose ethical monogamy. I want to explore my sexuality. To me, one partner at a time makes me feel like I can't explore my sexuality and my romanticism to the fullest. Ethical non-monogamy allows me to explore my sexuality while still being with one primary person. If I choose to have a primary partner, I may just have primary partners. I may just have partners. I may have both or one. Depending upon my choosing at any time, any moment. I have the right to change my mind, the right to keep my mind the same. Here we go. I I love ethically more than one person at a time. I lust ethically for more than one person at a time. I am programmed to romantically love two or or more people, and I feel monogamy holds me back from my truest self. I am programmed to sexually lust for two or more people, and I feel monogamy holds me back from my truest self. Um, I like having variety in my sex and romantic life. Opening up my relationship relationships allows me to do so without some of the limitations found within monogamy. Um, one partner may not be able to meet all of my needs. In some cases, my, a partner of mine may not be in a position physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally to satisfy my sexual and romantic needs. For example, I may be more turned on by kink or a certain type of sexual slash romantic playfulness and non-monogamy allows these desires of mine to be fulfilled by another person. And non-monogamy involves my being free to experience more love without jealousy without possessiveness um, I get to be able to enjoy human beings without monogamy saying you don't get to enjoy one, which would cause me to feel emptiness and a dissatisfied curiosity that's healthy. Um, so those are all the reasons why I choose Eskenomenon, okay? Of course, it's also possible to open up a relationship for reasons not listed here. Maybe it just feels right being in your relationship. Like the evolution and development of one's personality, interests, identities, uh, 
accept our gender, professional, romantic situations, and rules can change. Wait a minute. Here we go. It does feel right for me and my relationships. And like the evolution development of my personality, my interest in identities, example, my gender, my professional, my romantic situation, rules can change. Wow. For some people like me, non-monogamy provides a wide range of positive possibilities. Um, then I'm going to just read what they wrote. It can be expressed in a variety of ways. Some couples only have sex with other people. Others date them and fall for them. Others are open about being open. And yet others keep their openness in the classical socially. Sex relationships columnist um, Carly Skiartino has described non-monogamy as boundless. For her, pushing her boundaries and talking about them forced her to be honest with herself about what she prefers and to learn to communicate with her partner well and clearly. So here we go. Um, by the way, my ethical non-monogamy is also synonymous with my ethical promiscuity. So when I say ethical non-monogamy, talk about my ethical promiscuity. And you're gonna learn more about my ethical promiscuity, also known as my ethical non-monogamy in a few moments. Develop a relationship contract. That's right, a contract. With respect to trust and honest communication, these arrangements about consensual non-monogamy make everything we expect from our relationships and partners very explicit. A relationship contract outlines what every party is agreeing to in order to make peace for getting their own needs met while maintaining respective boundaries for their partners. Many couples will decide what places may or may not be off limits for taking dates. It could be also examples, a special restaurant or museum, what consent looks like for everyone involved, and what kind of sexual slash romantic acts might not be okay. Um, you want to know more about my ethical promiscuity, also known as my ethical non-monogamy? Number one, safety. One area to consider in your contract is sexual safety. These can include your expectations when it comes to protection, regular testing, and birth control. Some consider this a great place to start because couples often already have experience with this topic and is more readily defined. This area of your contract might discuss STD slash STI testing and forms of contraception. The examples are condoms, birth control, etc. It is critical to understand what any of your partner's personal limits are. This might also be a great opportunity to create a safe word if you don't have one already. This word could be used during sexual play as well as when you're interacting and socializing with new people or discussing a romantic interaction that takes place outside of your primary relationship. The use of a safe word can be something both instantly recognize the moment to stop and discuss what further action needs to be taken, if any. So safety is a part of my ethical promiscuity, also known as my ethical non-monogamy. Number two, physical limits. Regardless of your gender, sexual orientation, and kinks, non-monogamous situations will inevitably push your boundaries at one time or another. Taking the time to assess and understand your limits can prevent a great time from turning into an emotional whirlwind. Ask yourself honestly what your own heart knows are. What are your definite not okays? Not okays, O-K-A-Y-S. Then ask the same of your partner. This may be tough when you realize that it is encouraged that you and your partner both visualize scenarios in which your partner is with another person. What might you feel if you saw your partner hug or touch someone else? Over time, with more experience, you may renegotiate and expand your comfort level 
but it's important that you try and be as realistic as possible at the start. If the idea of your partner kissing someone else gives you anxiety, do not just assume that you will quote unquote get over it. Knowing you your partner's physical limits is essential. So physical limits are part of my ethical promiscuity, also known as my ethical non-monogamy. Three, uh, emotional boundaries. This may be one of the hardest conversations for partners to have as well as to admit to yourself. What is the emotional line that would, that would ruin what you currently have if it were crossed? For many who are polyamorous, the idea of sleeping with someone who treats them as nothing more than an object of sexual gratification is a complete deal breaker. For others within consensually non-monogamous relationships, particular places, activities, or forms of contact and communication are unequivocally off limits. The chance that you and your partner disagree on these boundaries is likely a non-negotiation communication being open to having an ongoing dialogue about this is key. For one couple, it was important for them to only communicate via group messages that include individuals from outside the existing relationship if feelings progress. They would discuss the potential for an impact of branching off into one-on-one conversations. It should be clear that a no for any reason from either partner would be respected. Another example of emotional boundaries might be only wanting disclosure whenever either partner had sex. For this couple, one member requested that the other keep all feelings to themselves to protect emotional boundaries. So emotional boundaries are part of my ethical promiscuity, also known as my ethical non-monogamy. Four, who to tell. Regarding privacy, a frank discussion about who it is possible. Regarding privacy, a frank discussion about who it is permissible to tell. Examples: family, coworkers, friends, or no one should be a point of discussion in your contract. Some members of a couple may be uncomfortable with the idea of others knowing this aspect of the relationship. If you have children, it's also important to make decisions together on what to tell or not tell them and when. While some parents elect to wait until their children are adults to tell them. Others choose to have open and honest conversations about non-monogamy, much like the way parents talk to their children about sex or puberty. Whatever is decided by you and your partner, it's important that you are both on the same page. This is one topic that cannot be taken back. If you are a private person, have concerns about how a non-monogamous relationship orientation might impact your career, religion, or social circle, one thing you might consider is creating a secret. One thing you might consider is creating secret social media accounts. This may allow you to have discussions, get slash give support, perhaps even meet new people. Creating a sense of community is imperative to a healthy relationship. There are ways to do it in public or in private. Whenever you and your partner follow on this topic, make sure you discuss it before you accidentally announce your extracurricular activities during a family holiday dinner. Well, I want to say this. I would never share what my partners would never want me to share in terms of information. I would never share what my partners ever want me to share regarding any detail about it. So I'm, I'm a trustworthy person. So uh, whatever boundaries they have, I'll honor them the first time and all the time. And vice versa goes for me when it comes to what I want disclosed, not disclosed when it comes to um, their socializations as well. So who to tell is a part of my ethical promiscuity, also known as my ethical non-monogamy. Five, lastly, uh, who not to see. One final possible topic of discussion to consider is to talk about who would be off limits to pursue a relationship with. Such rules come to mind as no exes, no close mutual friends, no co-workers, no one night stands, and no one that your partner has not met. 
This is rarely renegotiated at a later time, but of course, every couple may develop their own contractual agreements and experience their own relationship evolution. And now as a known discussing is completely off limits to quote unquote deal breakers from the onset is crucial. So um who not to see is a part of my ethical promiscuity as well as my ethical non-monogamy. This you know who not to see is a part of my in my ethical promiscuity also known as my ethical dominance is the right way to say it. And to be honest, I would be in the casual couple relationship, not the committed kind. I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. Open relationships and all the other types of um, ethical non-monogamy are not an exit strategy. Um, open relationships and all the other forms of economic are not ways to soften bl- blows, avoid breaking up or transition out of a committed situation. Pretending to be happy with the situation while suffering inside doesn't work for anyone. Doing something with other people before discussing it is essentially a form of betrayal to your partner's trust. As you might have heard more than several times throughout your dating life, trust and communication are imperative to any relationship, whether they are monogamous or not. Opening up a relationship requires a lot of trust and radically honest communication. Uh, Dr. Ellie Sheff, an educational consultant and expert witness serving sexual and gender minorities, emphasizes that prioritizing a primary partner is key when practicing non-monogamy. When two compatible people are getting to know each other, they sometimes want to spend every minute together. which can leave a long-term partner feeling hurt if you take your relationship for granted, Dr. Chef says. Wear special lingerie, surprise them, bring them flowers. For some, it's not a big deal if their partner has sex with someone else, but they can feel slighted if they're being emotionally neglected. Dr. Chef adds that in her experience, the most successful non-monogamous relationships are the ones in which the lovers' partners, the ones who aren't sleeping with each other, get along. Uh, in most cases, um, Jealousy is the rule and not the exception. Oh, I don't have any jealousy issues, so this is why this works out well for me. Experts on ethical non-monogamy talk about how monogamous commitments aren't force fields that protect one from jealousy. Jealousy is a universal emotion that transcends relationship orientations. Dr. Chef suggests taking a closer look at the underlying causes of jealousy and to confront jealousy in an open relationship and all the other forms of ethical monogamy the same way in most other relationships, write down your thoughts, discuss your feelings with your partner, or see a counselor. Ultimately, the best way to feel comfortable is up to individuals and their partner, and our partners have fun, stay safe, and communicate. Those are all uh, the details. Um, regarding me, there's more. Um, I am into dark, black-skinned, black people in terms of my all-around attractions, meaning my preferences. So I prefer dark, black-skinned, black women. I prefer dark, black-skinned, black men. And 
dark, black, skin, black, people of all sexual orientations, all gender identities, and all sexual characteristics as my preferences as well. I prefer black BBWs. Big beefy black men and large bodied black people of all sexual orientations and identity sex characteristics. I love physically fit, curvy thick bodies as my preference regarding my all-around attraction to exciting diversity of possible adults. So I just wanted to say that, and I do, I think African people in terms of the dark lasting black adult are the sexiest to me. I just gotta keep it real with myself. But I would say the non-African dark black skin, uh, black, Black people are very sexy to me. So I just wanted to clarify all this, okay? Um, I'm so proud of myself for being real and being true to myself. And All I can say is I'm free at first. It's no longer free at last. I'm free at first and I'm free without ranking. I just focus on my freedom.